0: Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 124, Law versus Grace, Some Thoughts. And on the podcast today, I would like to do something that I don't often do on the podcast, and that is actually read something from a journal of mine, something that I've been keeping for about 10 years, and so the thoughts that I'm Going to share with you today on the podcast actually come from an entry almost 10 years ago. It's one of the first entries into a little document that I keep on my computer, but it's something that oftentimes gets overlooked. And I want to try to flesh something out for us today as we try to think deeply, not, not um, everything that could be said about this topic, but certainly some things that oftentimes get overlooked. And that is, what is the relationship? between the gospel and the law, Uh, what's Jesus's relationship, in other words, with the Old Testament law, and how should we, as Jesus's followers, think about it. And I've been in the church long enough to know that there are different denominations or different faith groups who overemphasize or underemphasize this relationship, and in ways that I've personally found not to be all that helpful. And so this will give you a bit of a window into the way I think, um, as again, these thoughts have more or less shaped the way I view uh, large portions of the Bible and have done so for about the last 10 years. And so I just want to read you an entry. I'll talk with you a little bit about how these thoughts were formed in my own life. And then we'll take a look at a good way for Christians to be able to think about this relationship. So let's just get right into it. As I shared in the introduction, what I'm going to read for you today is a journal entry of mine from March the 8th, 2012. And just to give you a bit of the context for that, I was in seminary at the time. Um, I went to a Southern Baptist seminary, having grown up in the Baptist church and wanted to work out my education in something fairly consistent with what I had been brought up to believe, although I was already beginning. To adjust some of my thinking. Uh, My views were beginning to shift, but I more or less went to seminary in order to iron that out so that I wouldn't be making too much of that transition in the church and uh, potentially confusing people um, that I was attempting to lead. And so um, my wife and I decided to move away from our place in Ohio and go to seminary. And one of the main reasons we chose to go to this particular seminary was because um, two sets of our really good friends happened to go there. And, um, um, I was really good friends with, uh, two guys who I'm still really close with 10 years later, um, John and Corey and John and Corey and I used to have what we called man breakfast. And we would get together early in the morning, John or Corey, one of them would usually cook up something pretty manly, right? A bunch of pancakes, some sausage or bacon, or have some coffee there or whatever. And generally speaking, we would get together, to eat breakfast and talk theology. Um, We're all seminary students, so I guess that seemed to fit, but we all had lots of conflicting thoughts, new ideas. We were being challenged by things we were hearing in class, debating the professors, engaging other works um, that had been circulating. And those two men are still uh, theological partners of mine, but they're really good friends of mine as well. And, And you've heard Corey, I've had him on the podcast before, But one particular man breakfast, something came up, maybe something John brought up or maybe Corey, I don't know, but almost without fail, when I talk with either of these individuals or both of them at the same time, my mind is just racing and I usually get clarification on questions I didn't even know I had. And so I remember being in John's kitchen and not not wanting man breakfast to end, of course, but couldn't wait to get back to my apartment because I needed to sit down and write out what I was thinking. All these thoughts were swirling and that happens to me occasionally. I just get inundated with ideas and thoughts and I need to just go be by myself for half hour, hour, two hours, whatever, and just type. And that's generally what this journal of mine has, the purpose it served. It's really messy. It's sloppy. Stuff doesn't come out neat and polished. But I have used actually lots of the material that I have vomited onto these pages uh, for sermons or for some of the episodes you've heard on the podcast and for me working through some inner issues in my own heart and life. And so I just thought as an episode topic, it'd be helpful to read one of these entries. This is one I've actually used with church members. I have taught um, things that have come from this, but I've never explicitly set out on this podcast to offer this kind of an explanation. And so um, just hold on. Again, this was written for me, to me. Um, This is not like something that I'm getting ready to stand up and say. And as I reviewed it, I thought I might have said that a little differently now, 10 years later, and and that's all true. But I'm just going to read for you an entry that I wrote March the 8th of 2012. And here here we go. I'm just going to read it exactly as I wrote it. So I've been wondering about this whole law versus grace concept. The old versus the new covenant, the spirit versus the letter, yada, yada. What is fundamentally different now that Jesus has come? Why are we no longer under the law? Why is faith in Christ what produces righteousness and not the law? Here's what I've always been told. The law shows you that you can't be righteous faith is trusting that jesus has come and obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf and so by faith i trust in jesus's sacrifice so that god gives imputes jesus's righteousness to my account so that when god looks at me he sees jesus's righteousness my understanding now of my life is that i'm a sinner i'll always be a sinner jesus saves sinners that's me And my goal for Christian living is to constantly come to appreciate Jesus' gift to me by continually reminding myself and others reminding me of all the ways in which I think and act sinfully. My sanctification is defined by my continual reminder that I've been justified by God despite what I actually deserve. And therefore, spiritual growth is more or less coming to appreciate my justification more. Once I fully appreciate that fact, as a keen sense of my own unworthiness before a holy God is supposedly meant to produce, I will want to serve God out of a sense of gratitude, out of thankfulness for him from saving me eternally despite what I deserve from him. Being in Christ then means that God no longer considers me righteous based upon an adherence to a set of rules, law, but rather by his abundant goodness, kindness, and forgiveness in Christ, grace. Law and grace then are opposites. I'm not under law, rule keeping. I'm under grace, free, unmerited favor in the sight of God based upon Jesus' performance, not my own. This, I believe, fundamentally defines Christianity as I had come to understand it. Notice I said, had. I do not believe this understanding of the law versus grace distinction makes good sense of the biblical material, it's incomplete. And it only sees the law in a negative sense, showing me how unworthy I am. However, I do not see these kinds of distinctions being made in the New Testament. I do not see Jesus abolishing the law, but rather fulfilling it. At least that's what he said in Matthew 5.17. I do not see Paul encouraging laxity in believers' lives. In fact, I see his seriousness about obedience elevated, not diminished, Further, there is no way to understand those passages in the New Testament that threaten believers for not continuing in their faith. So, what is the difference between law and grace? What is the difference between letter and spirit? What is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? In other words, what has changed now that Jesus has come? How were Old Testament saints considered righteous if Jesus hadn't imputed his righteousness to them yet? What is the goal of Christian growth today if Jesus has already done it all for us? It seems to me that what is going on is that in the Old Testament, God gave his people a law that he said was good, Romans seven fourteen. This law was a good reflection of the character of God. It expressed to his people what he wanted them to be like in their dealings with others, inseparably connected to God's actions in dealing with his own people as the pattern the law was built upon. In other words, to love God's law was to love God himself. To obey that law out of love for God was to begin to reflect the very character of God, which involved loving others, especially those less fortunate than yourself. The law was given to be a window into the character of God so that those who worshipped this God might know what he expects. So the million-dollar question is this, can obedience to the law produce righteousness? And two further questions follow. If so, how? And if not, why not? The answer to these questions is fundamental to understanding the relationship between grace and law, Old Covenant and New Covenant, and letter versus spirit. What is Jesus' relationship to the law? How did he understand it? What did it mean for Jesus to fulfill it? And how are Christians supposed to conclude from Paul's statement that we are not under law but under grace. Let's work from the bottom up. God is a person. He is infinitely holy, altogether righteous and perfect in all his ways and completely other than his creation. Furthermore, no one can see God. No one can catch a glimpse of God in his creation lest he die. Human beings can see the works of God and are encouraged to praise him as a result of his works, but no one has ever seen God. So, God is good and wise to give his standards, his law, to his people so that they might come to know what he is like and what he expects from them. But those to whom he gives his law are also people. God's laws to them were meant to instruct them as to how they were to love one another. But one cannot conclude that to know God's law is the same as knowing God himself. Personality is always involved when one considers actually carrying out the law's requirements in everyday life. God is a person. He is not something written. Furthermore, any attempt to define God's requirements in written form will always fall short. For example, Paul says that one purpose of the law was to shut up all men under sin. The law was given because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promised referred had come. Does this mean that once Christ came, the law ended? Does this mean that once Christ came, people no longer needed to obey the law? No. What it means is that certain commandments within the law, divorce, for example, according to Jesus in Matthew 19, were given because of the people's hardness of heart to permit divorce, was not to endorse it. God's law restrained any irrational, heartless handling of divorce to protect the woman from complete frivolity when it came to her husband ditching her at will with no word or reason. God loves marriage, as the Bible repeatedly affirms. However, because of man's hardness, his intent to break off important relationships without a thought as to love or faithfulness in the matter, God gave Deuteronomy 24 in order to protect women he in no way was endorsing divorce and Jesus is quick to point out that fact. Furthermore, the law also permitted eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Was this because God is in favor of retaliation? Of course not. Again, the law was given because of transgression. Well, what does that mean? In this particular aspect of the law, it was given to prohibit what is so common to human nature, repaying evil with more extensive evil. Call it one-upmanship if you will it's the thought that to get even really means that i'll do more to you than you ever did to me just to show you that you're messing with the wrong person our form of justice in retaliation is always skewed we seek more harm to the original offender than they did to us and the worst part of it is that we feel justified in doing it so in the law god was protecting the offender we can do no more to him or her than they did to us. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So this, becomes, this issue becomes rather intriguing when you consider that yes, this law is good, but no, obeying it perfectly does not ensure that you are righteous. Merely refusing to pay back an enemy more than he harmed you does not ensure that you love him. And yet you are obeying the law by abstaining from escalated revenge. Merely giving your wife a certificate of divorce does not ensure that you value her needs above your own. And yet you are obeying the law by giving her that certificate. So the law is good, as Paul affirms in Romans 7. But this is also why Paul can say that what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did in sending his son, Romans 8:7. In other words, when Christ came, the law was no longer needed. Why? Because the personal God who had revealed his character in a written law now revealed himself to his people through a person. That person being the very image of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We no longer need a written law to reveal to us what God is like and to show the world how those who follow this God ought to live. The reason we don't need this written law is because we have a living person, Jesus himself, who embodied the totality of what the law was after, but literally exploded it from the inside. Jesus did not attain righteousness by keeping the laws that were written. He was righteous in the sense that everything he said, did, and thought was in conformity with love of God and love of man. Jesus tells us that the entire purpose of the law and prophets was aimed at attaining this, but that the law itself was incapable of producing it. The failure isn't because the law was bad. The problem is with us. We don't understand God's character merely by reading about it in a law code. We don't come to understand the nature of God merely by following a list of rules. One can follow all of the rules, achieving blamelessness according to the law, and still not be righteous. The reason? Because righteousness isn't defined merely by what you don't do. It's defined by love of God and love of neighbor. But no one can fully understand what that, what that means without seeing it in action. No one can understand what love your neighbor as yourself means without seeing someone love their neighbor as themselves, even at the cost of their own life. But this is exactly what Jesus brought for us. He is the perfect representation of the character and nature of God, his divinity, in human form, his humanity. He fully embraced the goal or purpose of God's law by truly fulfilling it. Jesus didn't change the law or bring in a new law. He merely showed us what a right grasping of the law's intention would look like if properly embraced by a human being. This is why Paul can say that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, Romans 10.4. This does not mean that for those who place their faith in Christ, the law no longer applies. It means that now that we have seen righteousness, true righteousness as embodied in a living person, we no longer need to look at a written code to understand how we are to live. We have that law now written on our hearts. And how is that done? It's done through the Spirit, whom Jesus said will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. John 16, righteousness because he goes to the father. Well, what in the world does that mean? It means that once Jesus leaves, the world is left without its picture of perfect righteousness. They still have the written law, but remember, such a law could never produce righteousness. So one of the spirit's main responsibilities, again, according to Jesus himself, is to remind us of what Jesus was like, to remind us how he lived to remind us what he said, to remind us of how he interacted, to remind us of how he interpreted the law and what he said its true intention was, to remind us of Jesus' definition of true righteousness, which involved the entire Sermon on the Mount. According to Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount was his explanation of what righteousness looks like that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. It is a righteousness not built upon the law code, but rather a righteousness that seeks glory, honor, and immortality. A righteousness that seeks first the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness not concerned with one's own rights, but rather how one can improve the lives of others to the glory of God. Therefore, by faith we believe that Jesus' way of righteousness is the ultimate way. It is the true expression of the character of God and it willingly forgoes any special status that might be granted one for keeping the requirements of the written law code. To place one's faith in Jesus means that one embraces that definition of righteousness and lives by it. And when we see that righteousness, real righteousness, do we recognize how unlike that our lives have been? Yes, yes. And it is the gap between our way of being righteous and Jesus's way that we plead with him for forgiveness. It is the gap between our way of being righteous and Jesus's way that shapes our repentance. But it does not mean that we trust that Jesus lived by that standard of righteousness and then he gives his status of being righteous to me, but that there's nothing more required of me. Rather, as one of his followers, I too embody that righteous reality and live my life according to it. Yes, all the while recognizing that my only chance to do so has been granted to me through being united with Christ and having had my sins forgiven. This is why on the final day, God will vindicate those who had faith in Jesus. What does this mean? It does not mean that God, will be, that God will ask whether we placed our faith in Jesus' sacrifice and perfect life for us, regardless of what we did. It will mean that if we have embraced Jesus' definition of true righteousness, then our entire lives will reflect that type of righteousness more and more as we grow. Again, that's why the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Thus, aligning ourselves with God's righteousness and validating our true standing as his people His final vindication, i.e. his justification of us on the last day, is such an earth-shattering reality and is such a guarantee for those who embrace God's true righteousness that God is willing to justify those people now, which is the shocking reality for Paul in his writing. God's work is incredibly gracious and Paul can rarely contain his excitement. I hope that wasn't too much for you to take in, but that was basically the entry that I sat down and typed out shortly after that man breakfast um, the morning of March, March the 8th. And one of the values from my perspective in having a journal like the one that I have is that oftentimes a week, two weeks, a month, a year later – Some new thought will surface or some new experience um, I will have gone through and will maybe answer some questions that I had um, prior to that. And by being able to go back and reread thoughts that I had or questions that I had or things that I was pondering, I'm able to put pieces together. And this one was great because it wasn't even two weeks later where my ethics class in seminary, um, bridged this very topic. And our ethics teacher kind of laid out a really helpful chart for us where he talks about the way the Bible uses the moral law. And what I realized was what I was pushing against is seeing the law primarily in only one of these three senses. And I was sort of advocating, as you just heard me read there, of some of the other ways that the law is meant to be used and trying to keep all three of those in perfect tension. And so I'll use the words he uses, and then I'll see if I can explain what each of these were. But I thought I would just share this with you because this has also helped form the way I think about the law. So the three uses of the moral law, according to my professor, were a social or political use, Um, a convictional or a theological use and then a a didactic or a pedagogical which just means a way of instruction it's teaching this kind of idea and so in scripture different metaphors are used for each of these and for the social or political use the metaphor is a bridle Um, and the idea being that it it restrains men from sin and a common example for this is Galatians 3.19 when Paul says to the Galatians why then the law it was added because of transgressions until the offspring to whom the promise referred had come. Um, and so one of the points there is, is the, the what I said in, in my journal entry. Um, this is for the person who wants to retaliate and the law steps in and says, here's a, a ten- tendency among human nature. I'm not going to let your retaliation exceed this limit. I'm going to insert a law that's going to restrain you and restrain society. So this is a social or political realm um, in order to keep society from going in a more downward spiral than it needs to. So the reason why this is important to point out is because the law is good, as Paul will later say, if one uses it the, you know, the, the law is lawful if one uses it lawfully, right? But if, if you conclude like the Pharisees did, that because Jesus gave them permission due to their hardness of heart to divorce their wives, the Lord was protecting the wife from being abused by her husband, that that means the Lord is in favor of, of, of divorce would be to misread that law. And so there's a second way, and this is the way that I had grown up, particularly in the Baptist church, but it might not have been just the Baptist idea but it was this theological or convictional use of sin. And the metaphor here would probably be something like a mirror. So the law simply convicts men of sin. We look at the law, we see that we can't live up to it, and then all we're reminded of is, is our unholiness, holiness, right? And so one example of that would be Romans 3, 19 to 21. It says, Paul says, and we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So here Paul is talking about what the law does to convict us. It closes every mouth, no one can boast before God, we're all accountable to him, no works of the law, a human being will be justified. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Well, that's Jesus. The righteousness of God, God's faithfulness to keep his covenant promises has not been revealed by a written law code. It's been revealed in the person of Jesus, who, as I said in my entry, perfectly enables us to see what the character of God is actually like because we're watching him live that out as a person. And so we've got this social or political use, which is a bridle restraining people from sin. We have this convictional or theological use, which is a mirror convicting people of sin. And then we have this third aspect and it's this didactic or pedagogical, right? This teaching. And the metaphor here is a lamp. And the law instructs people in righteousness. This is Psalm 119, right? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So you've got these three aspects of the law constantly. And it is discouraging, frustrating, and I think unbiblical to only highlight the one, the convictional or theological, that the law is there to convict people of sin and hold that up as if law and grace are now opposites. That is not true. That is not the way Jesus talks about the relationship between the law and what he's inviting people into. That is not the way the New Testament speaks about the law. Goodness, the law of love, the law of grace that the New Testament amplifies. The book of James seems to indicate that the law now is a law of love and it is far more intense than what the old covenant law ever was. All three of these for instruction, for restraint, and for conviction is why the law is given. And so it's constantly at work in all three So yes, we need the law to convict us that we're filled with sin, but the law's main point is not to do that. And then once that's done, we flee to Jesus and there's nothing more to be done. Like that would invalidate the entire point of the New Testament. And so I wanted to highlight this as has been evident in my own life, but I wanted to highlight it because far too often the law is spoken about as if its only function was to convict people of sin. And since those people fall short, the law is now seen as this dark cloud, right? But go read Psalm 119, all 176 verses of it. David did not see the law as a dark cloud. He loved the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditated day and night. His precepts were glorious. They were like rich life given to David. David is not penning Psalm 119, begrudgingly moping around about how unholy he is. No, David knows that the law was a gift of the Lord to instruct him and his people into what righteous living meant. So sure, the law in David's life, the truths that Nathan spoke to David, for instance, convicted him about his adultery with Bathsheba and subsequent murder of her husband. But the law itself was not just there to convict. It was also to point David in the right direction which again is what conviction is, is when you are then shown you're not going in the right direction and you need to change direction. So it's just as important to keep in mind the instructional aspect of the law and the restraining aspect of the law as it is the convicting aspect. And so that's why I chose to read that for you. I'd love to interact with you if if you have thoughts or questions or comments. Um, As I said in the introduction, this is by no means an exhaustive look at the law and grace concept. I was just recently um, reintroduced to the fact that not everybody sees this thing the same way that I do. And, And I know that there is an infinitely long discussion um, about how people even think of the term works of the law. And in l- recent years, I have taken the side that does not look at the works of the law as if people are trying to get saved by their works. I, I really don't see that um, that, that type of, of way of looking at this issue as surfacing in the New Testament. That certainly is a um, post-Reformation way of interpreting the passages that Paul is writing about. But I think there's far more to be said about Paul's understanding of the difficult relationship that existed between Jews and Gentiles and particular Jewish ways of being and Jewish ways of living, which were outlined for them in the law. And so the Jews themselves felt that because of their particular ways of being Jewish – that that set them apart from everybody else to such an extent that it, it verged on the line of the Jews then being the righteous ones and the rest of the world being unrighteous. And it creates a lot of this us versus them mentality. And I personally think that in the Christian church in America today, Our failure to understand righteousness the way Paul understood it, I think, from the first century is what does not give us the ability to see the dangers inherent in the us versus them mentality. And we talk quite a bit about this in the book of Revelation, but I think looking at the way righteousness worked and looking at the works of the law as being particularly Jewish identity markers frees us up to see the dangers that we can fall into just as easily today when we set up our own identity markers as that which makes us superior to someone other than us. And this, again, is where the law instructing us in righteousness and the law restraining us in righteousness find every bit as much of validity and need in our own lives as does the convictional aspect of the law so again, I would love to hear comments or thoughts that you have. Um, this prompted me to recognize I've written lots of things down in this journal of mine, and I've, I've read some on the podcast, um, but this may give us more things to talk about in future weeks. Um, but I'm again, I'm thankful for this podcast. I'm thankful for you listeners for tuning in each week and engaging me with questions. I've received several emails from listeners this week who were excited that the podcast started up again and had gone back and listened to earlier episodes. Of course, I would always encourage you to do that if you find those um, helpful in any way. But that's all, all I've got for this week. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week and I will talk to you next time.